Welcome to Reconstruct. In this episode, we speak with theologian Kevin Vanhuser about the relationship between philosophy and theology. He walks us through two main topics. First, he distinguishes between modernist philosophy and postmodernist philosophy and their associated shortcomings. Second, he presents a third option between these two extremes, a specifically Christian approach. And he does this most notably through addressing the problems of interpretive pluralism and denominational factionalization. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Van Hooser. Now at Reconstruct, we try to help deconstructing Christians begin reconstructing their faith. More Christians than ever are deeply questioning everything they once held as true. They're faced with challenges that have seemingly torn holes in the supposedly unified fabric of ordinary Christian faith. And now something we've realized, and we actually addressed this on the very first episode of this podcast, is that much of this intense doubt and skepticism is often fueled by postmodern philosophy. So you're a specialist in postmodern philosophy and its intersection with theology. Maybe you could start us off by giving us a couple quick examples of some common doubts with which deconstructing Christians are burdened that are the offspring, so to speak, of postmodern philosophy. Yes. Well, so all Christians are affected by their time and place, not least in the way they read the Bible. So I would have thought that uh, that would be the place I'd want to begin, because to be honest, that was how I first got interested in postmodern philosophy. I have a theory that the way people read the Bible and the way commentaries are written say a lot about the current issues in society and the academy. So just take biblical commentaries, what people are interested in as far as commentaries, the way they're written. These, to me, are barometers of social and academic trends. So I got interested in postmodernity because I encountered people who were losing confidence in their own interpretations of scripture or in the interpretations of certain scholars. So let's just start with biblical interpretation, how we read our Bibles in the present time, uh, particularly when we're aware of the conflict of interpretations. This is not a new thing. It's been around for a while. People know that others read the Bible differently. But in our postmodern times, I think we could even go so far as to speak of a crisis in biblical interpretation. And might it also be true that in the information age now, the knowledge of other interpretations is like instantaneous. Like everyone is sort of even more almost oppressively aware of how many types of faith there are in the world. No, that's a great point. I think it took uh, centuries for Westerners to understand that they were Westerners. <laughs> that is, they thought, you know, this is this is the world, right? The way we see things is the way everyone sees things. But in these voyages of discovery in the 15th and 16th century, it came as a, a shock to the Western system to discover that there were other kinds of people. And the first reaction was to think, well, they must be inferior because they don't think like us. So, but you're right. Now that we have social media, we're so aware that there are a plethora of other views. But but what I want to underline is this. The postmodern condition creates a crisis out of that because not only does it help us see that there are these other positions, but I think there's something in postmodernity that 
causes us to lose faith in any kind of process for arbitrating the conflict. The question is, you know, who do we trust? All these people are saying things. Who do we trust? And do we have procedures to fact check? And the other relevant date or occasion to mention here is that we're on the eve of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Yeah. And some people are, you know, marking it and celebrating. Other people are pretty suspicious and they're actually wondering whether we should celebrate this movement that supposedly recovered a way to arbitrate the conflictions around scripture. Some people are wondering whether this wasn't just one more power ploy. So it's a very uh, debilitating suspicion when you not only suspect that other people are using language and their Bibles to oppress you, but when you are suspicious of every process for resolving those interpretive debates, that's that leads to a crisis. Right. So what is it about postmodern philosophy that makes interpretive pluralism into a crisis? Yeah. So uh, the modern world got going thanks to Descartes. When Descartes, having traveled around his Europe at the day, he, he also discovered a conflict of interpretations. And Descartes wanted a method that could arbitrate the dispute. He wanted some kind of method that could turn mere opinion into knowledge. And so he developed through his philosophy a method of doubt. And essentially modernity, building on Descartes' insight, is about uh, rational procedures that result in objectivity and truth. It's the age of science. And there's a huge confidence in the powers of reason. So modernity, confidence in humanity and its ability to reason to truth. Postmodernity, not so much. <laughs> For various reasons, we've postmoderns have lost this confidence that human beings are essentially knowers who through their reason can reach the objective truth objectively. There's a, as, as a crisis in the idea of reason, there's a crisis in the idea of objective truth, and there's a crisis in postmodernity about the idea of rationality. So I think that there's maybe a, a false sense among some people that everything was modern until it was postmodern, but that's not true. Jesus and Paul were not living, speaking, and writing in modernity. It's pre-modern. Pre right. So, uh, again, one of the other things the postmoderns want to point out is that we're all situated in place and time. And so one of the critiques they would make about modern thinkers is that they simply forgot their place. They forgot that they were as located as everyone else. And there's a suspicion then on the part of postmoderns that your location gives you a certain bias. You can only see partially. Sure. You don't see universally, even though you have reason. And the postmoderns think that modern thinkers had a blind spot. They, they were blind to their situatedness, let's say. They were blind to the, the influence of their class, their race, their gender, and all these other historical particularities on their thinking. And postmodernity has turned the tables and now exaggerates those differences so that I guess a radical postmodern might say, tell me where you're from, 
what your class is, what your gender is, and I'll tell you the way you think. They can explain thought away by locating it in particular kinds of bodies. Right, so the postmodern argument of temporal and geographic situatedness has made a crisis out of interpretive pluralism because such an argument precludes interpretive objectivity. In other words, it's almost like any one interpretation loses any possible claim to be the one true interpretation. Yeah, uh, Richard Rorty, an American philosopher and a postmodern, I think expresses this really well when he says he doesn't believe in truth with a capital T. Hmm. That would be truth, the view from nowhere. Instead, he wants to listen to people tell stories. <laughs> and that would be truth of the small t, the way particular people see things. And he thinks that they might even have truth for their situation if they can survive and get along. He's a pragmatist or a neo-pragmatist. But that's very different from saying you have truth that is true for all times and places, truth with the capital T. Postmoderns have problems with those capitals. It strikes me that there's just surely some middle ground in between those two. Somebody will post something on a Facebook thread about race and someone else will respond, well, of course you believe that you're a white cisgender male. Right. right. Like that's too far. Like it's not nothing and it's not right. everything. But it's a difference between those features influencing rather than determining. Yeah. Influence versus determination maybe is a good way of saying it. Yeah, I want to. I, I agree with that, and I don't want to vilify postmodernity, nor do I want to make modernity into some kind of a hero. As a Christian thinker, I actually have problems with both modernity and postmodernity. My problem with modernity is that I think it can succumb to the spiritual sin of pride. You know, my point of view is the point of view. And yet, on the other hand, postmodernity can succumb to the spiritual sin of sloth, which is basically, why make the effort if I really can't arrive at the destination at the end of the day? And the thing about pride and sloth these are both deadly sins. They can both sap away our belief that anything we do is uh, worthwhile. Uh, and then it could sap away the uh, humility that I think should accompany Christian thinking. One of the doubts that Christians are often faced with is not just, how can I find one true interpretation, but they're burdened with the skepticism of whether or not they can find truth in any sort of universal sense outside of texts. In other words, to bring up geographic and temporal situatedness, many Christians are just convinced that if they were born in India, they'd just be an adherent of Hinduism, but they're a Christian because they were born in America. How would you respond to those sort of doubts and skepticisms? Well, as you mentioned, you know, I think there is a middle ground. I think both modernity and postmodernity have a certain point, a certain insight into the human condition about the fact that we are located. But on the other hand, you know, modernity has a point. We do have this ability to be self-reflective and to think and to and to compare points of view. So I think influence is probably the better term. I don't want to be a determinist. I don't think, you know, you have to believe a certain way just because you were born or raised in a certain place. That is to uh, forestall the possibility that you'll come across a word, a text, a sermon 
that will challenge and something that the spirit can use to regenerate and reorient your whole life. I think, I believe that that's possible. Uh, nothing is too difficult for God. So I'm certainly not a determinist. On the other hand, it would be silly to say that our location doesn't influence this to some extent. So really what we're after as, as Christian thinkers is we want to know ourselves and we want to know God. And as Calvin says, this is where wisdom begins. The knowledge of self is connected to the knowledge of God and, and vice versa. So I do think that there's something to be said for acknowledging our human condition. We're finite. We're not God. We don't have a God's eye view of the world. So just because you're born in the West or in North America doesn't really mean you're more likely to become a Christian. It, it may be, it may mean that you're more likely to become, say, a cultural Christian. Sure. So God will assemble his people from all four corners of the earth, you know, and in, in his own way, and his own time. So I, I want to just put that qualification in. I do think it's a check on modern pride to acknowledge our limitations, our finitude. And I don't think this is a bad thing. You see, I want to think about knowledge and truth and human being as a Christian. And that means I want to think about it in biblical terms and in doctrinal terms. And my doctrine of creation leads me to think, well, I am embodied, so I am going to exist in a particular place for a particular length of time. And, and here's the key, according to the biblical story, my createdness, my situatedness, my embodiedness is a good thing. God declared it good. So I want to be very clear here. Yes, we're embodied, and that means we're finite, and we see things from our bodily perspective, but that's a good thing, according to Scripture. I like that. That's not the end of the story, of course, right? Because... The human creature goes wrong very quickly, <laughs> epistemologically and spiritually. That is, they run into knowledge problems very early on in Genesis 3. They begin to have a kind of lust for a knowledge that they shouldn't have. And then that leads them to try to get it in a way they shouldn't have. So there's a problem. And as a result of that lust for knowledge, they actually lose knowledge. That is, human beings are fallen, and that somehow the fall of Adam and Eve and its effect on humankind affected our ability to know and reason about things as well. Uh, we, we see this in, spelled out by Paul in Romans 1, that our thinking has become futile. At least when we're trying to think about God, our thinking has become futile because our sinful pride has corrupted the normal processes of coming to know God. So you spoke of wanting to chart a middle way through the extremes of modernism and postmodernism with a Christian method, and you want to do it biblically and doctrinally, I believe is what you said. Yes. So could you flesh that out a little bit more for us? What does a Christian alternative to these points of view look like? So thinking in terms of the Christian account of reality— which is what I think the biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is, I would start with creation. And this links up with what some philosophers are saying. For example, Alvin Plantinga has a theory that talks about the design plan of the human mind. 
Now, this is an explicitly Christian view, right? Because you don't have design without a designer. So he talks about the design plan of the mind, and he says the mind was designed by God in order to produce true beliefs. That's a Christian ground for believing the deliverances of the mind are trustworthy. And that's exactly what we need today, because Plasnica says if you actually follow the evolutionary story, that natural selection and DNA being propagated to the next generation and so on, if that's the true story of reality, why should we trust the deliverances of our mind? Maybe our brains are simply trying to survive into the next generation. That's not an argument to say that their deliverances are true, right? Because we might survive perhaps by believing lies. Exactly. So I think Plantinga's argument is fascinating, and I link it to the doctrine of creation. God created our minds for the purpose of apprehending him and the world so that beings like us could flourish. That's what wisdom is in Scripture, living along the grain of the created order so that you flourish. But that's not the end of the story. We have to go on. As I've said, we have the fall. So this reliable belief-inducing mechanism, the mind, is no longer reliable because of sin. So I link this part of my understanding as a Christian with other theories about knowledge, particularly fallibilism. Fallibilism says a belief is rational not just because it's based on some kind of certain foundation, but because it survived a process of testing. Hmm. And I think that because of the fall, we now can't simply assume that the deliverances of our mind are going to be true. We have to test them. So I I think of uh, fallibilism as sort of connected to to, uh, the doctrine of sin. Sin's actually worse because... It's not simply that we're fallible, we're fallen, and that means we actively distort the truth when we feel that it's threatening to the way we want to live. But then, I also believe in regeneration, the renewing of our minds through the coming of the Spirit. And that is also a Christian resource that I think uh, speaks into the postmodern condition because it gives us yet another reason to believe that Christians— insofar as they're united to Christ and submitting to the Spirit, can actually reach not only a common mind, the mind of Christ, but in doing that, see things for the way they truly are. So as a Christian, I believe that reality is defined by what we see happening in Christ, who is the firstborn of the new creation. So it's a very Christian way of looking at things, but I think I can make it link up with non-Christian stories about knowledge. And so just my last point about the renewing of the mind, I'm fascinated that in contemporary epistemology, among secular philosophers, there's a new interest in intellectual virtue. And I would want to link up what secular philosophers say about intellectual virtue to the work of the spirit renewing our minds. Absolutely. And and your main point is that if you outline the Christian narrative from creation, fall, redemption, consummation, you get a completely different starting point than either modernity or postmodernity. Exactly. And if you have a different starting point, you're going to have a different pathway and also a different destination. So how can we apply this to some of the doubts that so many Christians have? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier the fact that we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And I also mentioned some people weren't 
particularly thrilled about it because some people point to the Reformation and say that's where interpretation really went wrong. Luther said that every believer was his own priest, the priesthood of all believers, and he told people to read the Bible for themselves, and that's precisely why we're in this mess. People are reading the Bible for themselves, and they're disagreeing, and Luther didn't give us a way out. And so the Reformation, some would say, is responsible for interpretive anarchy. They let that genie out of the bottle. So right. I don't really read the Reformation that way. I understand the objection. I think when Luther spoke of the priesthood of all believers, he wasn't giving to individuals the right to be their own popes when it came to Scripture. Um, I think he was trying to say that the church and not simply the priests should read Scripture and interpret Scripture, but he actually spoke of a priesthood. That is, yes, we're all individual priests, but we make up a priesthood of believers and interpreters, what Scripture calls the holy nation, the royal priesthood. This is a priesthood of believers under King Jesus. So we're royal because we have a king, King Jesus. What I'm saying is, I'm trying to get, I'm taking the long way to my answer, but one of the things I want to say is that the Reformers encouraged individuals to read in and with the church. So it's not as though we don't have a consensus on which to draw. We have Catholicity, we have orthodoxy. Catholicity isn't necessarily Roman. In fact, Roman Catholicity actually narrows the concept because Catholicity means whole or universal. To say that it's Roman is to narrow universality. But the point is, individual Protestants are to read Scripture knowing that there is a ancient consensus way of reading it, sometimes called the rule of faith, but uh, it's in line with orthodox creedal statements. And so, yeah, there's lots of details in Scripture, lots of puzzling words, puzzling ideas. And even uh, Peter says that Paul sometimes wrote in difficult ways. This is Second Peter 3.16, I think. Yeah. Uh, some of what Paul said was difficult. But the Reformers wanted to emphasize the clarity of Scripture and the fact that individual readers are reading in the church and with the church. And there's quite a consensus about what Scripture means. Again, if we are, particularly if we're talking about the overall storyline, the overall identification of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, who we are and what happened to us. So interpretive disagreement, that's the story of my life, right? I'm a theologian, so I'm always having conversations with people who read scripture differently. But I just think it's important on the eve of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation to remind folk that what unites Protestants in their interpretation is greater than what distinguishes them. Yeah, it's a great point, but there's also a particular difficulty. It's a great point because, yes, we should strive towards unity. And in fact, 
on our podcast, we have a few values that guide our explorations, and that's one of our values, meaningful unity, where we try to ground unity not in mere intellectual agreement, but in the fact that God has brought us together as children in his family. And that's practice every time, because Dan theologically is more progressive Catholic, while I'm a Calvinist. So we're completely different, but that doesn't generate disunity. The problem, though, is, of course, the Reformation is also blamed for the denominational factionalization that we have in Protestantism now. Right, so right. what do we do with the community crisis with which we're also faced? Because you're yeah. saying a key to interpretive unity will be community, but how do yes. we get past a community crisis in the different denominations? Right, that's a great question, and it brings us back to the postmodern condition, because the postmodern, some postmoderns, like someone like Richard Rorty, would say that really... Uh, meaning in texts is a function of interpretive community conventions. That is, different communities of interpreters have different sensibilities, they have different methods of reading. And so the real struggle when it comes to interpretive pluralism is not between individuals, it's between interpretive communities that have different interests, different aims, different procedures perhaps, and then come to different results. So that's the probably the most challenging problem of all that we're facing at the moment. Are you familiar with Christian Smith's book, Bible Made Impossible, and his Oh yes, I think if you, look, yep. if you look carefully on the dusk jacket, I have a qualified endorsement of that book. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, I'd like to just summarize his main argument for listeners and get your take on it. He just thinks you focus everything on Christ, and if you think that Christ is your interpretive lens, then you actually anticipate conflict between Christ and other parts of the Bible, and when you find that conflict, you go with Christ. Is that, am I about right there, Dr. Van Hooser? Uh, yeah, um, I think you're right. I mean, he, he is offering a constructive solution, and it does have to be, it has to do with being Christocentric. I think for Smith to make his point about Christocentricity, he has to assume that he can interpret the Bible well enough to tell the story of Jesus coherently. But if he can tell the story of Jesus coherently on the basis of Scripture, why can't Scripture address other things as well besides Jesus Christ? That's my concern. You either have to say it's clear and can make sense and has meaning about Jesus Christ, uh, and if you say that, then then why not say it about other things as well? And I would go further. We really don't understand who Jesus Christ is unless we understand the Old Testament. Jesus himself taught yeah. that uh, the prophet, the law, was all about him. I would maintain we don't understand who Jesus is and what he did apart from the Old Testament, which is why so much of the New Testament is filled with the Old Testament. You know, they're referring back, they're making allusions, they're doing typology. So I, I just, I, I think that for Smith to say the Bible doesn't really have authority because it's not clear enough, and then to say Jesus is clear enough, that just doesn't work because the only Jesus we have is the Christ of the scriptures. So you say, all right, I because your point is well taken, but what we find in scripture is we do have Jesus. And so if we look back at a problematic passage that seems to contradict the Jesus of the gospels, 
then we go with one of the options that highlights what it seems like Jesus is, something like that. Yeah, I, I, I know where you're going, and I appreciate uh, what you're saying. I think, yes, Smith wants to say that there's an authoritative story of which Jesus is the climax. My problem, though, and I think I know where you're going with this line of reasoning. My problem is you still have to uh, figure out who Jesus is. And the thing is, Jesus says some uncomfortable things, too. He may not command genocide the way God does, you know, to the ancient Israelites, if that's what it is, and I'm not sure that it is, but, you know, killing the Canaanites and so on. People like to contrast that with Jesus, the accepting face of love. But on the, on the other hand, Jesus does say some harsh things about end times. He's an exclusivist. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Also, Jesus is violent at times. He cleans the temple not with a sweep broom, but with a whip. And so, in other words, this idea of you know always reading the bad stuff in the Old Testament through the meek and mild Jesus, I don't think that does justice to the reality of Jesus as the New Testament presents him. He's not a tame lion. I, I'm not. I'm not appealing to any sort of meek and mild Jesus at all. We can say, yeah, Jesus is an exclusivist. This is why I can't be totally confident as a universalist as much as I'd love to be. Is that Jesus? Mm-hmm. Jesus talks about judgment. The only thing I would want to add is, um, as far as I can tell, Jesus never repudiates the descriptions of God's actions in the Old Testament. That's true, as far as I know, yeah. I mean, it's an argument from silence, but I think it is significant because he doesn't seem to say that some parts of the canon get God right and others don't. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's an argument from silence. I mean, the the cultural situatedness of the gospel writers, of Paul, of all the New Testament writers, uh, you know, no one really... Really, no one in the New Testament condemns slavery. Well, I mean, if we want to say, look, brass tacks here, do we think that it was ever God's intention that Hebrews be able to own non-Hebrew slaves for life as a possession to be handed down to their children? Do we ever think that that was what God wanted? It doesn't sound like it should be a rule for all time, but on the other hand, given the A&E context, and also given what is said about the Jubilee year, it could be that this institution isn't the horrible thing we associate with uh, slavery in North America. I read studies that lead me to think that, and it's not a justification for the continued practice, but uh, there's a progress of God's revelation and redemption. And William Webb makes a a big point about what he calls redemptive trajectories. And the Hebrew scriptures, he would argue, at least with regard to slavery, are very much part of of a redemptive trajectory. That is, you start with people where they are, and then you move them towards redemption. The Jubilee year, I don't know. Did any other A&E nation have yes, something like this? Yes, the Code of Hammurabi about 700 years prior had that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I, I, believe in the, I believe in the trajectory. I'm, I'm all about that. I think the trajectory ends us in Jesus, mm-hmm. something like that. Okay. Now, to get back to interpretive pluralism, 
Van Huser, what is your solution through interpretive pluralism and community factionalization? How do we bring communities <laughs> together to make interpretive communities that can be rightly oriented? Yes. So uh, thanks for bringing us back on track. Um, so uh, I did write a book about this in, in, in part in dialogue with the reformers. It's called Biblical Authority After Babel. And so the Babel is the Babel of interpretations that the Reformation, you know, allegedly let loose on the world. What remains of biblical authority after the Babel of interpretations? So in the book, I, I address precisely this problem. How do we deal with community interpretive pluralism? And I suggest that we retrieve the solas. The Reformation solas, three were made explicit at the time of the Reformers. We associate two others with them. And um, what I like about the argument is that it seems so counterintuitive because many people think sola scriptura is the source of the problem, right? The Bible alone. So I can't rehearse the argument of the whole book here, but I do argue sure. that the solas should be taken together. That is, and it sounds a little ironic, but Sola Scriptura, the principal Sola Scriptura, should never be used alone. That is, in abstraction from the other solas. Interesting. So, yeah, I make a, a Protestant case. Now, part of that case has to do with what, what Sola Fide means and just the importance of trust. And then I use a, actually a Roman Catholic philosopher, Linda Zegzebski, uh, she's written a book on epistemic trust. And what I argue there is that if we trust our own thinking, which is what moderns do, their own individual thinking, Zegzebski argues that there's really a good case for trusting others as well. And here the key principle is this. She calls it epistemic conscientiousness. And it's this idea. It's the belief that if truth matters to me, and that if I trust that I'm doing my best to reach the truth, I should believe that others like me are also conscientious and doing their best to reach the truth. Now, this is a, a method. It's, it's not a matter of just counting up numbers and seeing what the majority says, but it does put a very different spin on the modern quest to find certainty for oneself. What it does is I think it gives us reason to trust more than we perhaps have as children of the Reformation, the Catholic tradition. Now, not all bits of it, and this is, you know, while I'm, I'm still a Protestant, but uh, I guess the emphasis I want to make in the book is that pro it's not enough for Protestants to, to just be good individual interpreters. They have to retrieve the Catholic tradition. Again, small c, going all the way back to the early creeds. And I argue that Luther and Calvin themselves were very concerned to be Catholic in that sense. There's only one church. There's only one church. They wanted to reform the one Catholic church. They did not want to start another one. So alongside the individuality that people associate with Protestant Reformation reading, I think we also need to remember that the Protestant reformers themselves cared about being Catholic, that is, about reading with and in the communion of the saints. And there's a quite a bit of consensus there. Not on every point, to be sure, but there's, there's quite a bit of consensus that at least minimizes 
the radical pluralism that people fear today. Now, a question I have is, I'm, I'm wondering if your bringing together the solas is an attempt at making maybe a new, like, closed-hand, open-hand distinction between core beliefs or ideas around which we can gather, then leaving ideas and the boundaries beyond the center, Yes, just sort of to enrich the discussion, because we've spoken before on an interpretation episode that I'm convinced that in the landscape of interpretive pluralism, much of what is seemingly conflict is actually complementary. It's just different perspectives or different points of view more than it is yeah. um, uh, like uh, incommensurable viewpoints or something. So right. does your right. does your argument allow room for interpretive pluralism just to allow us to see different perspectives that will actually enrich the conversation of theology? Yeah, very much so. And I think in a sense, that's the genius of Protestantism. That is, there is no one authoritative voice that rules out the other interpretations. Instead, Protestants have church councils and Bible conferences where the task is to share interpretations and, you know, let not everything bloom, but let the a num- there could be a number of plausible perspectives. I'm not a perspective. I'm not a perspectivist. I don't think truth is only a function of our perspective, but I do like to think in terms of a spectival realism. That is, truth is one, but there are many aspects of the truth. So, for example, if truth is light, well, you can break that light into different bandwidths and you have different colors. And so the, there's, a, there's a spectrum of truth, not in the sense that they're contradictory, but as you were saying, complementary or maybe a plurality of aspects of the truth. And I think, to be honest, that uh, some interpretive communities latch on to one aspect of the truth And that's okay unless they then go on to pretend it's the only aspect of truth there is. So I've always been impressed by biblical interpreters like Augustine and Calvin who say, you know, it could mean this, it could mean that. They're both legitimate readings. They don't necessarily contradict, but neither one sort of rules the day. Karl Barth, I think, was right, at least in this, that um, we can only know the God who transcends creation if God freely decides to make himself known by entering creation. In other words, it's a, it's a tall order to know God if it's up to you, if somehow you have to reach up to heaven. So the, I think the, the part of the good news of Christianity is that God has reached down to us and by communication, let's define that key term. By communication, I simply mean the process of making something common, of sharing something, whether it's information or something else. It's a rich word to make common, to share. And I think the, the biblical story is a story of God sharing his own life and light with us, uh, Light is a metaphor for truth. Life is a metaphor for, well, fellowship with God and, and, uh, and, and all the blessings that come from living with God. And so God has decided to share the knowledge of himself and something of his own life with us. That's communication. And um, 
So, yeah, it's not that it's up to us, but the Christian message is God has taken an initiative in grace to share something of his own light and life in free love with us. And uh, the Bible is part of this economy of communication. The, the, the economy means the historical outworking of God's decision to communicate. So God communicates through creation, through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. He communicates through scripture. And then he's communicated in a definitive way through his son, Jesus Christ. He's taken all these initiatives to make himself known so that the burden of knowing God doesn't fall simply on us. So, you spoke earlier of trying to tread a, a different path other than modernity's capitulation to pride or postmodernity's capitulation yes. to sloth, right? Yes, yes. So, what is that middle path? Is it some sort of balance between humility and conviction? And how do we walk that path? Yeah, that's a great question. I do think it, that, um, you know, to be a human is to be is to have certain capacities god-given capacities for knowledge we've already talked about that and i think god wants us to you know come to know reality and him as he is but but the christian life is also a walk and it's a path and i think time is extremely important god is patient with us he doesn't expect us to know everything at once we're often impatient. We want to look at the back of the book for the answer. But there's something about being patient and having to wait and to grow in knowledge that actually makes us into the kind of people that I think God wants us to be, mature people. Uh, when I was a college student, I, I was immature in my faith. And the, the symptom of my immaturity was fear. I was fear. I was fearful of being wrong or fearful that I would be shown to be in error. And that fear, uh, I think, kept me from learning, <laughs> kept me from growing in the truth. So we, we read that uh, perfect love casts out fear. And I think it's because perfect love helps us to put uh, humility and conviction into a state of equilibrium. And when I say perfect love, I mean love for truth and love for God. And as I grow older and hopefully more mature, my conviction grows that God is good and my love for the truth grows. And I'm hoping that I love the truth more than I love my own system of theology. In other words, I am growing in conviction, but I'm also very humble still. I've got to love the truth more than my own system of theology. That is, I have to be willing to continue asking questions of my system of theology, of my way of interpreting the Bible. And I think even though it can be painful and sometimes scary, uh, I don't live in the fear of that expiration. And I think it's love for the truth of God and a willingness to follow this love where it leads us um, helps us to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. In other words, I, wanna, I want to know reality. I don't want to just simply be told that my system was right. And so it is a prog it is a walk, it's a pilgrimage, 
It requires, I think, a willingness to say, I may be wrong here and there, that's humility, but it also requires a conviction to keep to keep going, a faith that um, the search will not be pointless. Right. Well, we have one last question that we like to ask everybody. Should everything else be questioned or fall away or go poorly or whatever? What is the absolute bedrock of your faith? I think it would be, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that nothing can separate me from his love. When I hear the word of God, I, I respond in belief. Um, I don't feel that I've worked myself into belief. I don't feel that this is something I accomplished. It feels more like a gift, to be honest. And I'm very grateful for this word because without that word and without the gift of trust in that word, I don't know what I'd be doing. <laughs> I'd probably be a radical postmodern or a radical fundamentalist. Uh, I'm not sure which. <laughs> it's more like the assurance has been developed in you than you've achieved it. Yes, very much so. And it feels more like it's been received and it's something for me to cultivate and steward, share with others, but not like an achievement and not something that I would want to lord over others either. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for conversing with us, Dr. Van Hooser. If people want to find you online to learn more about your work, where can they find you? They probably should look up my faculty web page at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I'm afraid I'm not on Facebook, folks. <laughs> That's great. That's very healthy. We'll put that in our show notes. We'll also put a link to your Amazon profile as well if they want to learn more yeah, about your that books. Would be, that would be great. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation. Uh, send me the link when it comes up, okay? We will. We will. All right. Take care. Take Bye-bye. Care. See ya. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you're looking for ways to help us out, please go to iTunes, subscribe to our podcast, and leave a review. It really only takes a minute, and we'd very much appreciate it. If you'd like to share any of your comments or questions, you can do so at our website, reconstructpodcast.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.